welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, July 10th, 2009. I'm Elena Rangi. The ways that we monitor our changing climate probably seem pretty obvious. There's the warming of the Earth that we measure with thermometers. There's a rising sea level we can track on our coastlines. We measure our carbon dioxide output, energy consumption, smog levels, and shrinking glacier sizes. And Rick Astor, a professor of geophysics at the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology, has another method. Astor uses seismological data from around the world to analyze what's happening, and what's been happening, to our climate. Through seismograms, he can track ocean wave and storm activity and see how our largest bodies of floating ice are interacting with each other. This week, I sit down with Astor to get the details of his research. He recently gave the 2009 IRIS lecture at the American Museum of Natural History. I'm uh, Dr. Rick Astor from New Mexico Tech, and I'm a seismologist. What is a seismologist? A seismologist is a scientist that studies... Uh, the sources of what we call seismic waves, which are basically sound waves or the analogs of sound waves traveling in the solid earth, and studies their sources and their propagation through the earth and uses that to learn about both the events that cause seismic waves, like earthquakes, which are frequently of great interest, and to use seismic waves to study structure like the deep interior of the earth. How did you get into seismology? Well, my background's uh, a little bit varied. I started out originally in electrical engineering, which turned out great for seismology because electrical engineers analyze signals, which are what seismologists do. And I also got an additional major in physics, and then I went into grad school in geophysics and did my PhD research working on the San Andreas uh, fault system and its earthquakes in Southern California at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Seismology, of course, is founded on the study of earthquakes. The interesting thing, though, is as we built these wonderful sensitive instruments to study earthquakes. We've also developed a global system of extremely sensitive sensors, many of which are permanently installed at places around the world, many of which are portable and can be used to chase various types of activity. And these sensors, it turns out, have a tremendous variety of applications, not just in earthquake science, but also in volcanoes, glaciology, and they also have applicability to studying Earth's climate in the sense that Events that are generated by weather, like very strong waves in the ocean, are also detected by seismometers all over the world. And the seismographs that we've deployed for other reasons also have the record of Earth's ocean climate, for example. When you're looking at all of this seismic data, how do you differentiate the difference between an earthquake vibration, a wave vibration? We use a variety of techniques. First of all, earthquakes are what we call transient, relative to this incessant background noise from Earth's oceans. Even the largest earthquakes come and go over a time scale, a matter of hours or so. So first of all, they look different in the sense that they have a distinct impulsive start, they go on for a certain period of time and they die out. The oceanic background noise is just, as I say, it's incessant. It comes and goes. It rises and waxes and wanes with the intensity of storms around the world. The other way that we principally identify different events is by what we call their frequency content. The pounding of ocean waves on the world's coasts is at a different, in a different period band, as we say, 
than many of the signals we associate with earthquakes. So there are various ways we can filter to look at things that are basically oscillating in a particular frequency band to find and isolate different types of events. And finally, we frequently learn a lot about seismic sources by locating them, as you might imagine. That involves techniques with large networks of seismometers to try to figure out where the energy is coming from. Is it coming from the oceans? Is it coming from an earthquake source zone? One of Aster's main projects is tracking microseisms caused by ocean waves crashing into coastlines all over the world. Microseisms are tiny, almost undetectable tremors in the Earth which usually have nothing to do with an earthquake and are caused by forces like strong wind or waves. Microseisms from ocean waves have always appeared as a constant noise on seismograms. A few years ago, it occurred to Aster that with over 30 years of data from seismographs available, someone should probably start looking at trends. I started doing this on sabbatical about three years ago. I got interested in it both because I thought it would be a neat thing to look at and because the data sets were getting long enough now. We have continuous data. That is, we have um, seismic digital data now that's readily available that is sampled at one sample per second, so one measurement of ground motion every second. It goes back almost 40 years. And of course, there's been a lot of debate and conjecture and speculation about the impact of uh, global warming and climate change on Earth's storm systems. And it occurred to me that certainly one should see evidence for this in the global microseism because the seismographs provide a unique record, an integrative record of all the wave energy, especially hitting all the world's coasts for 40 years. So what are you looking for exactly? Are you looking for an overall increase in activity or is it possible to see certain big storm events on the records? Basically, what we do is we count outliers. So if you think of a distribution of events, you know, microseism events generated by Earth's ocean waves from very small to very large, we're interested in counting the very large ones at this point. So it's the high end of, of the, what we call the distribution. And we find that at the vast majority of stations, not just in the northern hemisphere, but worldwide, wherever we look, over the last 20 to 40 years, we see a gradual increase in the number of extreme storm events, which is really stunning. I mean, it's something that we, of course, were curious about, but the strength of the signal is remarkably large, and it's remarkably consistent across the world's seismograph stations. Now, when you say a gradual increase, what are we talking about? It varies from station to station. The record is noisy in the sense that there are recognized events like El Nino's and La Nina's that uh, clearly change the storm frequency and the intensity of storms, and indeed the places where storms hit the world's coast, because the storms track differently under those conditions. So what we're looking at in the study that we're emphasizing now is the gradual increase in the number of extremal events. You know, you can say, okay, that station looks like it has an increase, this station looks like it has an increase, but we've now looked at over 30 long-running stations around the world, and uh, over 75% show an increase. Who else is interested in this data and this research? Well, anyone who's interested in climate, I think, should be interested in this result. I think this complements oceanographic measurements, for instance, those made by the uh, Ocean Buoy Program. But the microseism complements this in an interesting way, in that the intensity of the microseism measured at a particular seismic station is basically an integral or a sum or an average over a large stretch of the continental coastline, whereas a buoy just measures wave height in a single spot. And that integrative effect comes about through two mechanisms. One is you can have a seismograph on an ocean island like Hawaii, 
and all the waves generated all over the Pacific travel to Hawaii and break on its coast, and therefore it's sensitive to a large part of the Pacific Ocean. Or you can have uh, an instrument in a continental interior that's sensitive to seismic waves that are generated by ocean waves breaking along a very long stretch of coastline. So I think the seismic record has this averaging, spatial averaging effect that complements a lot of other measurements uh, and should be of great interest to people who are interested in the effects of global climate change on storm intensity. Ocean wave data isn't the only data Astra is using to look at our changing climate. When I was working in Antarctica on a completely independent project, which is studying an active volcano in Antarctica, uh, we deployed seismographs on the mountain, and we started to record these very, very strange signals coming from uh, what we originally thought was the volcano, but fairly rapidly determined was actually coming from the ocean. And these signals were actually being generated by gigantic icebergs that started calving off of the Ross Ice Shelf, which is Antarctic ice shelf that is uh, Earth's largest expanse of, of floating ice. And these giant icebergs, uh, the largest was about as long as Massachusetts, started moving about with the tides within the Ross Sea. They started to produce these very unusual signals, completely unexpected, and so this is just a serendipitous uh, discovery. And uh, we can listen to one of these, actually. In my talk, I speed these up. These are seismic signals sped up a hundred times, and uh, so you can hear them with your ears. just heard is an hour of seismic data recorded on Mount Erebus, this volcano on Ross Island in Antarctica, that's being generated by the motions of a giant iceberg just offshore. So these seismic songs are basically being created when an iceberg calves and these two giant pieces of ice are grinding together? That's right, that's what we determined. I mean, there was another hypothesis actually that was being uh, promoted by a German group that had made some similar observations around the same time, that it was actually a musical-like signal that was being generated by ocean water being forced through crevasses at the bottom of the iceberg. But what we actually did was we took some portable seismographs, we went out to one of these icebergs, along with colleagues at the University of Chicago, and deployed seismographs for the first time on floating icebergs. Cool. And so did you prove that you were right? We did. We Well, we had this hypothesis that it was probably uh, caused by the bumping or groaning of icebergs against each other. And that turned out to be the case. We published this last year. Basically, we showed this by going to the iceberg and putting these very sensitive seismographs, again, originally designed to study earthquakes, very close to the collision zone of two of these giant icebergs when they were in the vicinity of Ross Island near the U.S. McMurdo base, so it was relatively easy to get out there with helicopters. And we actually showed that, indeed, the tremor, or a singing iceberg signal, was actually generated by tens of thousands of tiny little ice quakes that are happening uh, about once a second. And uh, when you look at these in the far field, they look like a musical tone. When you look at them up close, where they're not as uh, scattered and attenuated, you can actually see that the tremor signal is made up of tens of thousands of little ice quakes. And this is interesting. This is what we call a stick-slip phenomenon. It's exactly the same process that makes a, a door hinge squeak or a piece of heavy furniture squeak when you move it across a smooth floor. Uh, what's happening in the case of a hinge is the door 
is actually moving the hinge not steadily but in thousands of little stick and slip episodes per second. Your ear interprets that as a tone when it gets to be high enough frequency. It turns out the exact same thing is happening on a much grander scale with the giant icebergs. So this is the first time that scientists have ever been able to find waves that are, are you know, seismic data that's been generated by... That's right. There's a new class of seismic phenomena. It's, it's of uh, interest both as a, sort of a natural wonder, but also because this, for the first time, gives us a way uh, to monitor, even up to thousands of kilometers away for the strongest events, the dynamic processes that are affecting these giant icebergs as they drift through the Antarctic Ocean. Typically, they move at speeds of a few inches or centimeters per second. They're carried by the tidal currents. And as a matter of fact, they're so long, they're sort of like surfboards uh, surfing the, the tidal waves caused by the Earth's tides. And now, why is it important for us to be able to monitor them moving? Well, the fate of the floating ice in Antarctica is of great interest to people who want to understand the evolution of Earth's largest glacier systems. We're very interested to know if calving frequency is increasing, obviously, um, due to warmer oceans or uh, warmer air things that affect the glaciers. And this gives us a new tool to remotely monitor what's mm -hmm. going on. I should also say, getting back to the issue of ocean waves, we discovered that when you put these sensitive seismographs on large floating icebergs, they are exquisitely sensitive ocean buoys. So they record waves traveling to Antarctica from all over the world. Storms all over the world generate wave trains that propagate across the ocean and reach Antarctica, and we can detect them there. We can assess their effects on icebergs, for example. We can also record what we call micro-tsunamis that are generated by smaller calving events, ice falling into the sea um, all around, in this case, the Ross Sea area. So over an expanse of hundreds of kilometers, we can see these little waves get generated, relatively small waves. They travel, they shake the iceberg, gets detected by the seismometers. So we also have a new remote method of assessing the location and intensity of ice calving into the sea from this type of observation. So can you actually use the seismographs you put on these icebergs in Antarctica to get data for your other research? Is that all kind of connected? It is connected, and that's <laughs> one of the things that got me interested in ocean waves. For instance, we can detect both the intensity of storms in the Pacific and the intensity of small tsunami-generating calving events just by looking at the seismic records from these floating icebergs. And if you really look at these carefully, you can see over the course of an entire year for a seismograph on a floating iceberg, you can see all these signals coming in from storms, uh, in this case, all around the Pacific Ocean. Here's a storm that's traveled 13,000 kilometers and it's being detected on a floating iceberg in Antarctica. And indeed, maybe influencing, we believe, potentially the stability of these floating ice bodies. So this brings another interesting teleconnective hypothesis into play. The idea is that, let's suppose storms are getting more intense in the northern hemisphere winter, as we believe they are from the seismographic data. When you get a very large storm in the northern Pacific, in the northern hemisphere winter, that generates exceptionally large waves that propagate all the way down to Antarctica. When they get to Antarctica, it's summer, southern hemisphere summer, and there is no protective skirt of sea ice that dampens these waves. So they come right up on these large floating ice bodies like the Ross Ice Shelf and they perturb it. We don't know yet how significant these perturbations are, but it's possible that they play a role 
in the breakup of ice shelves. And for glaciers that have been around for millions of years, these breakups mean a lot when it comes to climate change. For more information on Aster's research, visit www.eesnmt.edu slash aster. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Thanks for tuning in. Did you know that Science in the City has a brand new website? If you haven't already, update your links at scienceandthecity.org. Can't get enough of Science in the City? Follow us on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash sciandthecity. Or you can find us on Facebook and find the science community in your city. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. We need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events series and our website. For more information on the Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. And as always, we would love your feedback on our new website or any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.